Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called Life Together on Mission. Together, we're learning to join Jesus in his mission in this world. Thanks for joining us. On September 8th, we shared our renewed vision for Cherry Hills. And as a reminder, I want to put that on the screen. Uh, Can we read this together? This is our renewed vision. It says, to see people of every generation giving themselves fully to Jesus and his mission. That's what we want to be about. People giving themselves fully to Jesus and what he's doing in our world. And following that Sunday, what we've done is we began a series called Life Together on Mission. If you're following in your notes, specifically, we're learning five practices that we see in the life of Jesus that can help us go into our community and world. If we want to join Jesus on mission to make disciples and fully give ourselves to him, then we want to practice what Jesus practiced. And the reason we want to focus on this is we believe the go in our life together strategy, if you remember gather, grow, and go, we believe go has the greatest untapped potential for us in joining Jesus and his mission. We are to join Jesus in making disciples. But if you're like me, you hear that and that feels a little overwhelming. How do I do that? Where do I do that? What in the world? How do I take a first step? And, And what I've learned and what's been incredibly helpful for me is that I used to think we had to learn a lot of different strategies for every different group of people we hung out with in order to tell them about Jesus. But what I've learned is what if there's just one strategy? What if there's just one strategy and that strategy is to apprentice Jesus, to spend time with Jesus, to become like Jesus so that we can do what Jesus did. And that's what we're doing when we look at these practices that we see in the life of Jesus that can lead us toward engaging our community and world. We first looked at the practice of prayer and how Jesus prayed and spent time with the Father to know where God was leading him. And that's what we have to do first. We pray and we ask God to show us where he is working and then we join him where he's working. Then last week we talked about compassionate curiosity and we looked at how Jesus asked great questions and he held open space for people that they would have to process things on their own. And we follow Jesus' example of asking questions, seeing people, and taking a genuine curiosity in their life. That was the habit of Jesus. We want that to be our habit as well. This week, we come to the practice of bless. And the habit of Jesus that I want us to consider embracing is that of blessing others. It's a theme we see throughout the entire Bible. When God chose a people to be his own, 12 chapters into the Bible, at the very beginning, God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Would you read it with me in the first gray box on your notes? It says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. If you're following in your notes, from the beginning, God's people 
are blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. And as the New Testament makes clear, these promises of blessing that God made to Abraham and to us, they ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus. Everything points to him, to his life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus satisfied the ultimate need that every human being has, our need to be made right with God again. But, but in this ultimate fulfillment, I think what I miss sometimes, if you're following in your notes, is that Jesus also practiced the habit of blessing others to satisfy a need they had in the right here, right now in tangible ways. Sometimes it was through a healing. Sometimes it was attending a dinner party. Sometimes it was providing food for people that were hungry. And sometimes it was simply through having a conversation. And when Jesus blessed others, something interesting happened. It frequently led to deeper spiritual conversations and others asking questions. So today, as we talk about how to practice blessing others, I think we need to start by defining the word bless because it means so many things to different people, right? Some words are easy to understand, easy, right? If I say the word baseball to you, you know what I'm talking about. I imagine all your minds, when I say the word baseball, think about the National League Central Division champion Cardinals. That's where your mind goes, right? That's where it goes. I mean, listen, if Chuck can stand on this stage and sing, go Cubs, go, then I'm going to point us to the Cardinals for just a, a second. Joking aside, we know what a baseball is. We don't have to define it. We don't have to describe it much. You know what it is. Not so with the word bless. I mean, it means so many things to different people. In our culture, most of the time today, it means to confer prosperity or happiness on somebody, right? Even when somebody sneezes and we say, God bless you, it's an expression of goodwill, expression of prosperity and good health. If you go to Instagram and you type in hashtag blessed, I did this on Friday, you will get 116 million returns most of them are new cars, vacations, or cute babies. But the Bible has such a rich definition of the word bless, much more than happiness and goodwill. If you're following on your notes, the Greek word translated blessed means to be fully satisfied. It's to be satisfied. A need is met. Something that was lacking is provided. And as I continue to study this word, there's a result that comes from blessing. Whether we bless others or someone bless us or God blesses us, there is a result in it. Author Michael Frost wrote a book called Surprise the World, and he writes that part of the history of the term to bless, if you're following in your notes, is to add strength to another's arm. When we bless someone, we are satisfying a need they have and we are adding strength to them by encouraging them, relieving their burden, helping them breathe a little more easily. It's anything that alleviates their distress or lifts their spirit. 
and it can be small or it can be large. So in our strategy of becoming like Jesus, let me say it again, as we go into our community, we begin with prayer. God, where are you working? Where can I join you? We practice asking compassionately, curious questions of people, taking a genuine interest in them. And if we can, we bless people. We bless them. To learn more about blessing and what it looks like to round out our imagination, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10 It's in the New Testament. It's one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you don't have a Bible, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And Luke chapter 10 can be found on page 843 of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. We would love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word. But I I believe it'll be helpful if you have a copy of God's Word out. You can circle words or make some notes. We're going to look at one of the most well-known stories Jesus ever told. And if you're familiar with this story, then my prayer is that we'll see it with fresh eyes and it'll lead us into seeing blessing differently. And if you're here and you're new here or you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you're here because I'm guessing you've probably heard the term Good Samaritan, but maybe you don't know the story that goes with it. You've chosen a great Sunday to be here. So our story begins, if you're following in your Bibles, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we read, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So the story begins with an expert in religious law, some translations might say lawyer, stands to test Jesus, and he asks him a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The reason I wanted to take a time out right out of the gates is because I want to make it very clear as we get started, you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Eternal life is not earned. It is inherited to, due to the death of another person. No amount of doing will make you into an heir. And we believe that if we trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and rising from the dead three days later, then we are heirs with Christ and we have inherited eternal life based on what Jesus did, not anything we've done. But this story, it's being told in a Jewish context And Jewish people in the time of Jesus and now believe you can earn being saved. So with that in mind, the lawyer asks what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. In verse 26, Jesus replies, he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus' response is kind of like, you should know. You're the expert. What does the law say? And in verse 27, we're told how the lawyer responded with familiar words. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. A couple things here. He'd probably heard Jesus teach this before. Jesus was an itinerant teacher. So he taught the same thing in different communities. He had probably been asked this question before and responded to it. So the lawyer had heard this, but he was also an expert in the law. And he knew what the Bible said, so he combined Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus looks at him and he tells him in verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this 
and you will live. Jesus tells the lawyer, right? You are absolutely correct. If you love God perfectly all the time and you love other people perfectly all the time, then you can earn your salvation. You can inherit eternal life if you live up to these standards. But you see the problem, right? Nobody can do this. I can't go an hour loving God perfectly, let alone loving other people perfectly. I need a savior. We all need a savior. So if we're standing there and this interaction is going on, maybe there's silence while the wheels are turning in the lawyer's mind about what to say next. Jesus is just holding open space. And in verse 29, the silence is broken when the lawyer comes back at Jesus with another question. If you're following in your Bibles, the lawyer says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let me just say it again. This guy knows that his people, the Jewish people, have been blessed to be a blessing to all nations. He knows this. And he's trying to determine what the minimum standards are. What are the minimum standards I have to do, Jesus? And in reply, Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Right? He doesn't give an answer to the question. Jeff talked about that last week. He holds open space. But Jesus' stories are so fascinating and they contain so much truth and they're memorable. We're here talking about it 2,000 years later. The lawyer asked a question, who is my neighbor? And we pick up in verse 30, following in your Bibles. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. I want to set the stage for this story. The first character in the story is a man. It's anyone, any person, No nationalities, no political party, no ethnicity. It's anyone. Jesus will not define or give parameters to who our neighbors are. He could have picked a man or a woman, but he picked a man because a woman would never walk this road by herself. So he picked a man. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 17-mile trip. It was a dangerous trip. And he was attacked by robbers on this dangerous road that's very steep. There's hills, crevices, and caves where bandits and robbers hid. I want to put a picture on the screen for you so you can just get your imagination going of what this road would have been like. It's probably only five or six feet wide. It had the nickname of Pass of Blood or Red Road because so many people got jumped and beaten up or killed on it. It was a dangerous road. And this man is walking down this red road. And in verse 30, it continues, they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. There's a man, no clothes, no possessions, wounded, beaten, hanging on to his last breath. He's in great need. And then verse 31, we read, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. The the text is written in this fascinating way that it could actually begin. It just so happened that a priest was walking by. Priests were men who oversaw the holy activities in the temple of God in Jerusalem. And what's going on here is that every year for two weeks, priests from all over the country would go to Jerusalem and serve. 
and practice the holy activities of God, and then they would go home. So this guy's probably been in Jerusalem for two weeks. He's walking home to Jericho, 17 miles. While he's in the temple, he's probably reciting Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 every day. And certainly this religious person knows that God's people were blessed to be a blessing to all nations, right? He knows. And when this priest saw the man, he literally, the word is when he saw him, he turned the opposite way and walked around him. And on a five foot wide road, what you saw on the screen, I wonder if he even had to step over him. He couldn't miss him. He saw the man, but he didn't really see him. Verse 32 goes on to say, so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by, on the other side. A Levite is just a priest's assistant, so he knows what the priest knows. He knows that God's people have been blessed to be a blessing. And the same word is used, he went the opposite way. If you're following in your notes, the priest and Levite both saw the man and did nothing. They saw him, but they didn't really see him. Now, this is where Jesus stirs the pot. Would you read this, the second box on your notes with me? It says, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. I've said this before when I've taught. Uh, whenever you read a Bible story or a psalm, many times, not always, but many times, the main point of the story is smack dab in the center of the story. This is it. This is the center. This is the main point of the story. If you were hearing this in a first century Jewish mindset, your blood would have begun to boil Jeff mentioned last week, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Religious leaders in Jesus' day, the Jews, would end some of their prayers with this line, God, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. So Jesus has stirred the pot and he tells them, if you're following in your notes, the Samaritans saw the man and blessed him. The Samaritans saw the man and blessed him. He had compassion on him. That's the word that's used, compassion. And if you're following in your notes, compassion means to be moved to show empathy and genuine concern. Move to show empathy. You identify with and show genuine concern. Fascinating. This is the word most often used in the New Testament to describe the emotional state of Jesus. He had compassion for people. So this hated Samaritan blessed the man. He had compassion on him. And we're told in verse 34, if you're following in your Bibles, he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And Jesus gets done telling the story, and then he asks the lawyer a final question, right? He practices compassionate curiosity. He asks a question in verse 36, he says, 
which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Did you catch what Jesus did right there? He changed the question completely. The expert in the law was trying to determine who could be classified as a neighbor so that he could know what he had to do to meet a minimum standard. If you're following in your notes, the lawyer asked the wrong question, who is my neighbor? He was asking, who do I have to bless? That's really what he was asking. Who do I have to bless, Jesus? Jesus turns that question on its head and says it's not about determining who your neighbor is. It's about defining what it means to be a neighbor. So if you're following in your notes, Jesus gives the right question. Who can I be a neighbor to? Who can I bless? That is a completely different paradigm. Who do I have to bless versus who can I bless? Jesus has asked this question, who was the neighbor? And he has this lawyer in a place where there's only one right answer. There's only one right answer. And in verse 37, we read, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Mercy and compassion show up in scripture together quite a bit. And I, wrote a, I read a great quote this past week. If you're following in your notes, it says, mercy is compassion moved to action. It's compassion moved to action. It's not just thinking something or feeling something. It's doing something. The compassion and kindness of Jesus leads to action because love is an action. It's not just a feeling. And Jesus finishes this story by telling the expert in the law, then go and do likewise. Go do like the Samaritan. This word go, interesting, is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 28, where he gives us the great commission, go and make disciples. As you go, as you go along the path of life, make disciples. And as you go along the path of life, ask who can I be a neighbor to? Who can I bless? And here's what I believe. I believe this with everything in me. If you're following on your notes, God puts people in our path if we're looking. He puts people in our path if we're looking. We will have opportunities to bless others. We just have to be looking for them. Jeff asked this question last week. I'm going to ask the same question. He, he talked about the woman at the well and he said, where's your well? Where do you hang out? Where are the traffic patterns of your life? Same question. What paths do you walk? What paths are you on that God will put people on if we open our eyes? And here's what I hope you begin to see with those two questions. I hope we're beginning to see that joining God, that joining Jesus in his mission means seeing our everyday lives differently. Because the context for apprenticing Jesus is our everyday lives. This question of who do I have to bless versus who can I bless is an everyday life apprenticing question. 
Here's a few examples of who might be on your path. You can probably write some down on your own. I'm sure some things are already going through your mind. Uh, first, most of us have next door neighbors. Most of us have next door neighbors. What if this week, what if I just throw this challenge out here? What if this next week, if you already don't, if you don't already know your neighbor's name, what if you went next door and introduced yourselves to them and got to know them? How cool would it be if everybody who calls Cherry Hills their church home knew the names of their neighbors? I just wanna put that out there that maybe that's a step for you this week. What if you went to work and before going to work, you prayed for God to guide your steps and show you ways you might be a blessing? Students, if you're in this room, the hallways and classrooms of your school, that is a path that you're walking, that God will put people on your path to bless if you're looking. Parents, what about your kids' sports teams or extracurricular activities? Those are paths that God will put people on if we have our eyes open. You can probably think of your own. And what I wanna suggest this morning is when we live with our eyes open for God's work, there are two ways we can bless people. Two ways, whether it's at work, whether it's on the sports field, whether it's at home, whether wherever you find yourself, whatever path you're on, one of the ways we can bless people, if you're following in your notes, is words of affirmation. Words of affirmation. We're not told what this Samaritan spoke to the Jewish person, but I don't believe for a minute that he just helped him and never spoke to him. I'm sure this Samaritan blessed this man with words that satisfied a need. Remember, he'd just been beaten to a pulp. He satisfied the man with words and it resulted in strengthening him. Have you noticed how powerful words are? I mean, one of the worst lies we tell our children is this old children's rhyme, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, finish it with me, but words will never hurt me. I took a shot at rewriting that this week. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will tear me down, ruin my day, discourage me, make me question my identity and purpose, exasperate me, drive me to despair, and have the potential to destroy me. I'd rather have a broken bone. The Bible has a ton to say about the words we use. Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is Ephesians 4, 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth except what is useful for building others up according to what they need, that it may benefit those who listen. Each of us need to be acutely aware of the power of our words. And let me also add, we need to be aware of how powerful the absence of such words of affirmation can be. This was a habit of Jesus to bless others through words. And as we apprentice Jesus, this needs to be our habit too. And listen, this doesn't mean telling people what they wanna hear all the time and just flattery. We ask God to guide us and lead us and we discern and we step out in courage and faith when he asks us to say something. We don't just say what somebody wants to hear, that's not love. But how do we develop a habit of living life with eyes open, looking for ways to bless others? And I wanna suggest the simplest way we can do that is through words of affirmation. Send a note, an email, a text message, a spoken word. It doesn't cost 
a thing. If you're a parent, your children desperately need to receive words of blessing from you. If you're married, your husband or wife needs to receive words of blessing, of love and acceptance on a regular basis. If you are a leader in this room, in any capacity, catch someone at work doing something right and bless them. What gets noticed gets repeated. This week, if you're willing to watch for it, God will put someone on your path that you can bless with words of affirmation. He will do that. I read a study this week, and one reason words of affirmation are so important, this blew me away. In our culture today, experts estimate that we have about 60,000 thoughts a day. 50,000 of them are negative. That's 80% of our thoughts, 80% of our day living in bad news. Friends, people are dying to hear good news dying to hear good news. And by speaking words of affirmation over someone, we can satisfy a need and strengthen their arm. I love this quote by Mark Twain. He said, I can live for two months on a good compliment. I believe that. There's power in that. There's power in words of affirmation. My wife and I were on a, a date maybe a month or so ago and we were out eating outside on a patio and there's a couple that sat down about 30 minutes uh, after us and they had a special needs child and every few minutes he would yell and, and make noises and as I watched this mom and dad interact with him, uh, the dad even picked him up and took him on a walk before their food came and then their food was delivered and they helped cut up his food and feed him and um, I, I just sat there and this whole time God's prompting me to say something to them and I, I fought it. I don't know if you've ever been there, but you're like, what if God, like what, what if I don't say it right? What if I mess this up? What if they get mad at me for saying it? I mean, I had every what if in the world, but I just had this overwhelming thought that I needed to say something. So we paid our bill and as we walked out, I stopped at their table and I just said, y'all are really good parents. Your love for your son's inspiring. And as I watched you love your son, I sensed God wanted me to tell you, you're doing a really good job. Their entire countenance changed. And I don't know what it's like to raise a special needs child, but I wonder if that compliment and word of affirmation kept them going for just a few more steps. Listen, I wish I could say I did that more often, but I usually give in to the what ifs and the all the excuses I have. But God allowed me a glimpse of his grace in that moment to see the power of a word of affirmation. That's what our words can do. So I wanna invite us this week, church, practice the habit of blessing through words of affirmation. I also wanna invite you to practice the habit of blessing through, if you're following your notes, number two, acts of kindness. Acts of kindness. The, the parable of the Good Samaritan is an extreme example. The Samaritan saw a need, he satisfied the need, he strengthened the man, he had compassion and kindness. But in addition to this story, the gospel accounts of Jesus overflow with acts of kindness. Jesus touches lives and makes a difference with a leprous man, a despised tax collector, people who are suffering to name just a few. Jesus gives us a picture that if we're willing to step outside of our comfort zones, 
and create acts of kindness to the unsuspecting or the hurting or our neighbors, that we could change their lives. Don't discount this. I so want us to get this. One act of kindness can transform a person's day. One act of kindness could transform a person's life. Let me alleviate the stress you're feeling. This doesn't always have to be big and expensive. In fact, I think most of the time we could satisfy a need and strengthen someone in a small way. But if you're like me, you don't think it counts. So we just don't do it. And I just want to say to us, let's not discount a small act of kindness and the result that it could have to transform a person's day or life. It could be that powerful. Here's just a couple ideas, again, to get your imaginations flowing. You can jot some down. Maybe you babysit an exhausted couple's kids. Maybe you mow someone's yard. You rake, your le- rake their leaves this fall. You cook a meal for a family that's just had a baby or someone's sick or they've suffered a loss. You open the door for someone. Buy a coffee for someone. Visit a nursing home. Buy flowers for a friend. Take a friend to lunch. I could go on and on. You have your own ideas. You, you know what this looks like. I just want to suggest that God will give us opportunities to bless people this way if we're looking for them. And as followers of Jesus, as we become more like him and do what he did, we live with our eyes open and we look for ways to bless people through words of affirmation and acts of kindness. Let me just offer one word of caution as we do this and as we practice this week. We bless in order to bless, right? We develop a rhythm of blessing because it mirrors the character of Jesus. We don't bless in order to get something back. That's manipulation. We bless because we've been blessed. And by engaging our culture through blessing, we may just have the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with somebody and make a disciple. So here, here's our invitation and our challenge. If you're following in your notes, as we practice these habits, bless three people this week. Bless three people this week. Step out of your comfort zone through words of affirmation, acts of kindness. And then what I wanna encourage you to do is use your journal. How did that go for you? Why did you step out and do it? What prompting did you receive from the Holy Spirit? How did it go? It might be unremarkable, but journal that anyway, that you had the courage to step out and do that. But three people this week, and just see what God wants to do with that. Just see what he wants to do. Friends, we are blessed to be a blessing. And I'm so thankful we get to take communion together this morning. It is such an appropriate response to this story of the Good Samaritan. If you didn't catch this as we read it, the story of the Good Samaritan is a picture of Jesus in us. That while we were helpless and dead in our sin and dying in the road, Jesus came and he showed compassion and he blessed us by giving his own life on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. And when we grasp the enormity of what Jesus did for us and how much he loved us, we'll wanna pass that on to others. 
our motivation for blessing others is Jesus. That's it. That's it. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.